0: Father, thank you. Uh, I'm just, uh, last night's, um, gosh, it's not right exactly to call in performance, but of the worship services last night and again today, uh, just so blessed and ministered to my heart. Thank you uh, for just reminding me, uh, capturing my attention and my imagination to uh, focus on the Lord's arrival uh, for this whole month. Uh, thank you for the way that our choir and orchestra Uh, did that for me this weekend. I'm just very, very thankful. Uh, Would your spirit be here? Lead us and guide us into all truth. Your word is truth and may we learn lessons tonight uh, that will minister to our souls uh, for the rest of the month. We love you and we thank you and we pray for this please in Jesus name. Amen. Laurie is not disparaging at all in this comment, um, but she says, you spend two nights in Isaiah. We cover Isaiah. If you haven't been with us before, we cover Isaiah in two nights, one to 40, and then 41 to 66. So you, you can start reading now if you want to, because uh, it's coming. She said, why, you know, you spend so much time in 2 Samuel, we're all just kind of ready to move on to 1 Kings. And I said, there are so many great lessons about David uh, that I just can't pass them up. Because for me, I love David, the character David, but David to me How does he get, now that you've read it again, I'm sure this is not ever the first time you've heard about David and read about David, how is it that this guy gets the label of a man after God's own heart? After after this stuff you've seen, do you just go, what? What is this? Why does he get, I mean, that label is an amazing label, How does he get that? Uh, We're going to see tonight why he gets it. So these last few chapters uh, in the book of 2 Samuel where we conclude, uh, this is the big section on the monarchy, Um, when we hit 1 Kings, Solomon will wrap up the monarchy, it'll take a few chapters, but we'll be wrapping up the monarchy and then we'll go to Judah and Israel when they divide. But how is it that this, this fella, uh, he, he, it's just a mystery to me, but a blessed mystery, and I'm praying that these last few chapters in 2 Samuel uh, encourage you. Sometimes we look at a person's life. And we evaluate it based on their um, performance. As we've been talking about for over a year now. um, How does God evaluate a person's life? That's the answer to the question of how does David get this label of a man after God's own heart in spite of all the crazy things he does? How does God evaluate a person's life? Uh, w- when I have the, the privilege of, of conducting a memorial, there's a, there's a particular poem written by Linda Ellis that I like to read because uh, for me it, it really begins to capture some of these ideas. So she writes this I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on her tombstone from the beginning. To the end. He noted that first came the date of her birth and spoke of the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that she spent alive on earth. And now only those who loved her know what that little line was worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters most is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. We've seen how David has spent his dash. How he's lived and how he's loved. And if God were going to eulogize David which, in fact, he has done in these last few chapters, you see what God is looking at in a life, if you will, to to measure it. Great insight from these chapters on what God remembers and what God wants us to remember just like a memorial service, what describes, what captures that person's life their dash. God is going to talk about that in these last few chapters where he's going to eulogize David, and that's what these last chapters are about. So let's take a look at it together. Chapter 20, Uh, Absalom's rebellion is finished. We've watched that. David, in chapter 20, if you got to read those chapters, uh, in chapter 20, David has just put down Sheba's rebellion that threatened to divide the nation. Uh, Remember, that's the one where he Joab (laughs) has a surprise for the new commander of the army. (laughs) Greetings, my brother. (laughs) Kills the guy, goes to the town. Hey, I don't want to tear the town down. Just throw me the head of the guy. Okay, we'll do that throw the head over the wall, so everybody goes home. Rebellion finished. Joab is very efficient. (laughs) So David has just put down Sheba's rebellion that threatened but did not divide the nation. The kingdom is going to go to Solomon, 1 Kings 1 and 2. So between 21 and 24... We have this interesting set of chapters. It seems to be a parenthesis. Why? Well, Saul's murder of the Gibeonites is chapter 21, and David has to do something about it. And then in chapter 24, David's (laughs) uh, mm, last sin... (laughs) is taking a census where other people are killed. So you have these bookends of people being killed, some by Saul and some by David. And you think, why is this in here? It's in here as, as bookends, as an inclusio, because what's in between them is really important. So we start off in chapter 21, Uh, with David has to take care of an old sin of Saul's. And by the time we get through chapter 24, we're going to see that God has actually used these chapters to eulogize David, to illustrate what his people should catch. David made some great decisions. David made some poor decisions. David made some downright sinful decisions. David was also caught in circumstances made by choices, the choices of others. David endured a lot in his life. And it's easy to look back and go, mm, look at David. Well, here's what God wants remembered as he sums up David's life. David will actually die In 1 Kings 1 and 2. And there's nothing more said about it other than, and the kingdom goes to Solomon. So where does God get to reflect? Where does God get to share what he thinks of David's life? He does it in these chapters. So he is going to eulogize, in a sense, David. Here's the first big heading that God wants us to know and to remember. There is a lifestyle that God won't allow to be forgotten. And that's why he records it here. And he's going to talk about David's life and the things that impress, if, you can, if I can say it that way, that impress God that he wants you and me to learn from as we listen to it. So there's a lifestyle that God won't allow to be for God. First, God won't forget David's pursuit of holiness. And so in 21... Uh, There's the Gibeonites. Remember the Gibeonites, they made a treaty with the Gibeonites that they wouldn't kill them even though they were deceived into making the treaty. They made the treaty with them. They're not supposed to kill them, but Saul kind of goes out of control, goes off the rails, and starts wiping them out. This is not good. And so finally, uh, there's a famine during David's reign that lasted for three years. So David astutely asked the Lord about it. And the Lord said, the famine has come because Saul and his family are guilty of murdering, murdering the Gibeonites. So David goes to them and says, what can I do? And they say, well, this isn't going to help and this isn't going to help, so here's what we're going to ask for. And so David grants them within some boundaries. He, he, they want seven of Saul's sons that are still living. He preserves Mephibosheth because of the promise he made to Jonathan, but he gives them seven of Saul's sons. So this is probably not necessarily at the end of David's life. This is just a a vignette from David's life that God wants us to see what happened. So David astutely asks God, what's going on here? God says, this is because Saul has murdered the Gibeonites, if I'm in the Old Testament, what's the, right, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. They're going to represent the perfect number of Gibeonites with seven. And so they're going to sacrifice seven sons to, for the lex talionis of eye for eye on all the Gibeonites that Saul has been killing. This is going to uh, reconcile it, and so they do that. And you know, there's one of the moms, of course, is um, rightly upset by the whole thing. But that uh, takes care of uh, that takes care of the issue. And then uh, the king orders that they bury the bones in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. Um, after that, God ended the famine in the land. So what do we learn from, from this? And well, let me talk about the Philistines too. And we've already talked about this one. Um, this vignette did not happen at the end of David's life. This preceded his time with Bathsheba. So we know that these little vignettes are not... Um, chronologically ordered. They're just vignettes that the author has assembled to tell us something. So the second little vignette is in the battles with the Philistines, uh, and that's when David um, runs the risk of actually dying in battle, and they say to him, you're not going again. And then we learn a little bit more about some of the Philistines, some of the giants, um, even one guy with six fingers on each hand and six toes. Uh, and we learn that these Philistines were descendants of the giants of Gath. But what is, what is David and what are he and his buddies doing? They're getting the Philistines out of the land. So don't get so caught up in the details that you can go, what's the point of this little vignette? David is clearing the land of its enemies. So, God won't forget David's pursuit of holiness. That's what these two vignettes are talking about. He's purging the promised land of sin brought on them by Saul, murdering the Gibeonites. And he's compassionate and merciful toward those who formerly sought his life. He even buries their bones in their father's grave. Then he purges the land of its enemies, and he even is teaching others how to kill these giants as well. So God won't forget. He, picks, he pulls these two vignettes from David's life to show us, remind us, tell us, I will never forget David's pursuit of holiness. And these are just two examples from David's life. That he uses. David fought with supernatural power against sin and the enemies in God's land. God is not going to forget David's pursuit of holiness. Another thing that God's not going to forget is David's humble dependence on him. And so he gives us some more little vignettes. And this one is. There's a long song, it's actually Psalm 18, it's very, 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 very close to Psalm 18, and so 22 in the beginning of uh, 23, where he sings kind of another, another little song uh, through verse 7, he, uh, God, well, David's humble dependence, God is David's deliverer, God blessed David's obedience. You can look through these different verses and see these characteristics. God strengthened David and gave him more responsibility. God and his word are David's security. And then little song in chapter 23, God made David his anointed leader. What's the point of these little vignettes, again, that the author has pulled under the guidance of the Holy Spirit? What does he want us to know? David couldn't live a day without God or without humbly submitting to his authority. 73, almost half of the psalms that we have left, captured, almost half are written by David. David couldn't live a day without God, or without humbly submitting to his authority. Can you? Some of you journal, right? You know what I mean by journal, right? You write. What if... <laughs> Um, you're translated to heaven tomorrow and your journals are left, would there be 73 prayers that would be worth passing down from generation to generation? That's, what, that's what's going on with David. These psalms were so inspired and profound. The, the community of Israel said, these are keepers. <laughs> we got to keep these. And we got to teach people these. I mean, this is amazing stuff, what David did. I don't do really well at journaling. I really don't do well at poetry. <laughs> I can read poetry, but sometimes even get that wrong. So this is amazing to me. But it's not the fact of what David is doing. It's that they illustrate David's humble dependence on the Lord. How would your children or your grandchildren know of your humble dependence on the Lord. That's what's important to God. That's what he's not going to allow to be forgotten. Pursuit of holiness, humble dependence. God's also not going to forget in 23, again, this is the final, uh, we get to David's mighty men, his warriors, and there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, there's the three, and then maybe there's the second three, but maybe not, and then there's the two, and then there's the 30, uh, but it kind of all adds up to 37. So there's 37 of these guys, which is verse the end of verse 39 of chapter 23. There were 37 in all. Uh, these guys, I don't know if you had a chance to read these. Are you kidding me? Here's a guy, right? He stands out here. Uh, the first guy, Jashabim. Okay, did you write that phonetically? Okay, you're going to need it. He's the Hakmonite. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> he is the Hakmonite. <laughs> what does he do? He, used, he once used his spear to kill 800 enemy warriors in a single battle. The floor of our sanctuary holds 900 people. Can you imagine one battle? You're basically taking out the floor (laughs) of the 11 o'clock service. Can you imagine this? You know, 800, amazing. Now, it was for Israel. It's not just like he went on this wild spree, right? He has a purpose behind it. Next in rank among the three was Eleazar, son of Dode, a descendant of Ahoah. Once Eleazar and David stood together against the Philistines when the entire Israelite army had fled, two guys standing there. He killed Philistines until his hand was too tired to lift his sword. And the Lord gave him a great victory that day. The rest of the army did not return until it was time to collect the plunder. <laughs> Two guys taking on a whole army. And once they're all dead, because the Lord winds up helping and strengthening them, so they kill all of the, everybody else it was there, and then the whole Israelite army shows up and goes, Yeah, cool! Let's celebrate! Let's all share the victory spoils! <laughs> If I'm David, I'm going, no, I don't think so. In this other guy. But that's not David's habit. He's like, let's go. Let's take this and share. Amazing. Uh, let's see, what else does he do? Oh, it's such good stuff. Oh, let's read 15. So they're um, surrounded. David's in the cave. The Philistine army is camped around them. David remarks longingly to his men, Oh, how I would love some of that good water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem. Great, David. We're in a cave. There's an army of Philistines around us. Good luck with that. Enjoy it when we take the city back. So the three, here's what the three do. They break through the Philistine lines. They draw some water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem, and they bring it back to David. They bring it back. We got you some water. <laughs> from, remember that water you were just talking about? We, here it is. And what does David do with it? He pours it out. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> what are you doing leaving me behind? <laughs> what is this? Why would he pour this out? This is where you're not allowed to forget Leviticus. You've already forgotten Leviticus, haven't you? Yeah, remember right after Exodus, there's Leviticus, okay? There's a drink offering that gets applied to other offerings, other sacrifices. A drink offering never stands alone. It is poured out on top of another sacrifice. What is David telling these guys? You are like a burnt offering to the Lord. And there's no way I'm drinking this water. It's to be poured out on top of your sacrifice unto the Lord. There's hardly a greater honor David could give them than pouring out the water. And they would have gone, Whoa, that's a drink offering. I wonder who who he's thinking of. Who's the sacrifice? you three guys, sacrificed yourselves. I, pour, I give the water back to God, and I pour it out on your sacrifice to him. Amazing, these guys. The Lord forbid that I should drink this. This water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. So David did not drink it. These are examples of the, ex- the exploits of the three. Oh, gosh, there's so many great things. This guy only killed 300, so he doesn't make the three. He, he's only in the, he's in the next group because he only killed 300 guys. Um, let's see. Another guy chases, right, another time on a snowy day, another guy chases a lion into a pit and kills it. That's what I do, for fun. (laughs) Can you imagine killing a lion? Yeah, I mean, you've seen a lion in a zoo, right? You're going to go chase this rascal into a cave and kill it? That's what this guy did. I want this guy as my bodyguard. (laughs) Oh, look, he is. So... Um, deeds like this made him almost as famous as the three. Uh, so he's just pulling these, these little vignettes of these guys to illustrate why they've made the rank they've made. And then he lists about 30 guys, um, perhaps in some kind of order that we don't know, but um, there's 30 guys, and verse 39, which of course we've pointed out before, makes his um, thing with Bathsheba, all the more heinous, is there's Uriah. Uriah was one of the 30. This is a guy who went to war with David and was a trusted guy. 37 in all. So David not only fights, but he leads others into kingdom service. God is never going to forget David leading others into kingdom service. That's the point of these vignettes. David's life inspired other men to follow him into kingdom service. God won't forget David's pursuit of holiness. God won't forget David's humble dependence on him. And God will never forget leading others into kingdom service. Why does David get the title, a man after God's own heart? Because these are the things God cares about. Are you pursuing holiness? Do you exhibit humble dependence on him? Are you leading others into kingdom service? This is the lifestyle God will not allow to be forgotten. God won't forget your pursuit of holiness. Are you purging sin from your life or still allowing it to pollute you? Do you need to be cleansed of sin? Are you naming and fighting the giants, intruding into the kingdom of man's soul? Are you doing whatever it takes to rid your land of such things? And are you fighting in the strength of the Spirit? If you're fighting in the sense of legalism or, or just willpower, you will lose. We must fight in the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8. You're not allowed to forget Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 either, along with Leviticus. That's some great Christmas reading, by the way. Leviticus and read Romans 5, 6, 7, 8 again. Be really good. God won't forget your pursuit of holiness. He won't forget your lifestyle of humble dependence on him. Are you planning or praying first these days? How's your praise life? How much time do you spend praising God versus how much time do you spend asking him for things? How well do you know God's character? And one that we talk about quite a bit in here because it applies first and foremost to me and maybe to some of you. How's your patience? Do you have a lifestyle of humble dependence on the Lord? He will not allow that to be forgotten. He also whoops he also won't forget your life of leading others into kingdom service. Where are you currently serving, and how regularly are you doing it? Is it just another project, or has it become more of a lifestyle for you? Who have you inspired and invited into kingdom ministry this past year, in 2023? God won't forget your pursuit of holiness your lifestyle of humble dependence on him, and your life of leading others into kingdom service. When you talk to your children and you talk to your grandchildren, these are the things you should make much of. These are the things God values. Not, hey, son, hey, grandson, look at me. Let me tell you about my life of holiness. But talking to them about living a holy lifestyle, that's important. A lifestyle of humble dependence. They may say, well, you know, Granddad, what does that look like for you? You need to be able to tell them. Here's what that looks like for me. How about a life of leading others into kingdom service? Those are the kinds of things to also share with the next generation or generations. God won't forget these things as you and I pursue them in our lives. 2 Samuel 24 goes with 1 Chronicles um, 21 through 29. Chapter 24 is sort of the close of the bookend, the inclusio on how uh, how God is going to eulogize David's life. He's been talking about his lifestyle up to this point. Chapter 24, he's going to devote to David's contributions. So, 20 through 23 is basically his lifestyle. This is how he lived his life, how David lived his life. And then in 24, these are his contributions. And these are some other things that God is not going to forget. So, just where are we in the progression? David has prepared the nation for Solomon, there's peace in the kingdom. He put down Sheba's rebellion. That's done. There is peace in the kingdom. David's life has become the standard by which all kings in the future will be judged. Well, he's no David. When we hit kings, he was like his ancestor David. Or he wasn't like his ancestor David. David becomes the measuring line. His pursuit of holiness... His humble dependence on God, his leading others into kingdom service, these kinds of things are what gets reinforced um, in kings, and other kings are held to this standard that's being painted in these chapters. If the king does these things, he's like his ancestor David. If he doesn't, he's not like his ancestor David. What are those things that we're talking about? These things. So he's going to spend the last years of his life completing the preparations for building God's house. That's what the rest of chapter 24 and 1 Chronicles 21-29 through is about building the house, building the temple. Which is where David turns his attention now that there's peace in the kingdom. So this chapter, along with 1 Chronicles 21-29, to is the author, God has directed the author, to talk about contributions God won't allow to be forgotten. And he records these things in chapter 24 in 1 Chronicles so that we understand this is what God is looking at. Bottom line of this is David gave his best for God's house. First, he gave his best commitment. God gave David the plan. In the same way Moses got the plan for the tabernacle from God on the mountain back in Exodus, David gets the plan for the temple, the one that Solomon's going to build, from God. He's also, remember 2 Samuel 7, David knows he's not the guy who gets to build it. Guys, speaking to you, um, how do you feel about building somebody else's thing? That's what David does. He's like, I don't get to build this, so I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen and make it successful, even though I don't get to build it. David throws himself into pursuing God's plan for building his house, even though it wasn't David's plan. And even though David would have a background rather than a foreground role, he got involved and fully engaged in God's plan. In fact, he embraced God's plan as his own. God is not going to forget David's giving his best commitment. He gave his best motivation. His motivation was to display God's glory. He longed David longed to make God's name famous, not his name famous. He was motivated to bless God's people, not to be blessed. God's holy presence was among them in the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and what uh, God has in mind, which is where Jesus gets on them in the New Testament, is a house of prayer for the nations, because God has a heart for the entire world. That's what God's heart is, as I'm trying to come up with a place that's a house of prayer for all nations. Not to draw attention to or to make a name for himself as Saul and Absalom had done. You don't find David making any statues of himself. Although there are probably plenty of people who would have liked to make a statue to David. There's no record of David making a statue to himself like Saul did or Absalom. We are to note that by its absence. But David cared most about making a name for God. So he gave his best commitment. He gave his best motivation to God, about God, not to or about himself. He gave his best resources. David, I think, had a lot, but he was also very generous. 4,000 plus 112 tons of gold, 4,000 tons of gold, that's a lot, but not measured against the silver, 40,000 tons of silver. You understand why when Herod made this place better after the, you know, after, uh, the Babylonians wreck it and then eventually Herod's going to rebuild it and it's going to be just as good or better, you know now why the Romans are knocking this thing down and burning it down in A.D. 70. They're after this. They're looking for the gold and the silver. Now, different gold and different silver, but put together in the same way. They are looking for the precious metals in that temple. That's why they knock it down and burn it to the ground. Because when they set it to fire, they melt the gold and the silver. And it runs out and they collect it. That's their payment. That's why they're so eager. Yeah, you bet we'll go tear the temple down. (laughs) Here we go. Look at the riches in this temple that Solomon is going to build. Other things, bronze, copper, wood, etc., without measure. (laughs) They just gave up measuring it. It's a lot. It's a lot. We're not even going to measure it. He gave his hard earned rewards generously. He also applied his talents to organizing the temple ministry. And so in 1 Chronicles 22 through 29, he organizes the the different um, um, groups of priests and musicians and things like that, which they use for hundreds of years, what David came up with, his little logistical plan. They keep that in place because it's so good. In everything... David gave only the best he had for God's house. Why does he have the title, A Man After God's Own Heart? This is one of the reasons. Because in everything, not just his treasure, his commitment, his motivation, as well as his treasure, he gave his best to God all the time. Crazy little story here in 24, on the site God chose. So David is given his best resource. Where is David going to build the temple? Doesn't really matter because God has a place in mind. How is he going to get everybody there? Well, Israel has sinned again, and so God is going to discipline Israel, but he's also going to instruct David. David. And so, uh, in chapter 24, once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he caused David to harm them by taking a census. Go and count the people of Israel and Judah, the Lord told him. Now, in the First Chronicles version, um, Satan is actually the one who prompts David, but God is allowing this because he's going to discipline Israel and he wants to teach David something. So the king says to Joab (coughs) excuse me. The king says to Joab and the commanders of the army, take a census of all the tribes in Israel from Dan in the north to Beershevan in the south so I may know how many people there are. Look, look what. Remember Joab. Hello my brother. Grabs his beard, stabs him. (laughs) Right? This is Joab. This guy Probably not the most astute person, spiritually, in the whole kingdom. What does Joab say? Joab replied to the king, "Uh, May my lord your God let you see, live to see a hundred times as many people as there are now, but why, my lord the king, do you want to do this? Joab is going, "Uh, This is not a good idea. Right? Joab. Just bear in mind who's saying this. Joab is saying this. Hey, this is not a good idea. Why? Because, David, you're taking a census. Why? Because you're beginning to count on your own might and strength to win battles. Not God. Joab's saying, don't do this. Don't do this. But God is going to discipline Israel and teach David something. Something. So Satan prompts, the ultimate cause behind this is God, the instrumental causes are Satan and a hostile nation, and the efficient cause is David, if you want to break all of this stuff down. God is the one with the plan, he steps aside and says, Satan, go tempt him to take a census, David takes the census, even though Joab is trying to stop him, David says, do it. Off Joab goes. The efficient cause in this whole thing is David. David is the one who's put the wheels in motion. So Joab takes almost 10 months. He goes and counsels them. He comes, brings it back. There were 800,000 capable warriors in Israel who could handle a sword and 500,000 in Judah. So about a million three. I don't know what the size of Fort Worth proper is. It's about that size. Might be two million people. But think of Fort Worth. If you took all the people in Fort Worth proper, that's about what they just counted. But after he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I mean, good, David, good. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. The next morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, who was David's seer. This was the message. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I will give you three choices. Choose one of these punishments, and I will inflict it on you. (laughs) Yay. So Gad came to David and asked him, Will you choose three years of famine throughout your land, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of severe plague throughout your land? Think this over and decide what answer I should give to the Lord who sent me. I'm in a desperate situation, David replied to Gad, but let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning, and it lasted for three days. A total of 70,000 people died throughout the nation, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. But as the angel of the Lord was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, by the way, who is the angel of the Lord? Spare this in mind. As the angel was preparing to destroy, is that weird to you? Like, what? Why would the angel of the Lord, if the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus, you know, it's a Christophany, why is Jesus doing this? Do you not remember that after he finishes his role as redeemer, he has the role of judge, and the Father has turned all judgment over to the Son? Because you refuse the redeemer, and the redeemer knows you've refused him, now you only meet him as judge he will execute judgment. But as the angel was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented and said to the death angel, "Stop! That is enough." At that moment the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. When David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, "I am the one who has sinned and done wrong, but these people are as innocent as sheep." What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and my family. Gad shows up. Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up, to the, uh, went up to where the Lord had commanded him. When Arana saw the king and his men coming toward him, he came and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord the king? David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. What is the plague doing? Killing people. Take it, my lord, the king, and use it as you wish, Arana said to David. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and you can use the threshing boards and the ox yokes for wood to build a fire on the altar. I will give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. Great principle coming up. But the king replied, no. I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. Okay, what were burnt offerings? To show complete consecration and dedication. Peace offerings, now there's peace between us. And the Lord answered his prayer for the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. The end. What is God trying to tell us in this chapter? First, this is how God is disciplining his people and instructing David about the site that he wants the temple built. So this is the site that God wants chosen. It's a site of judgment for David's sin of pride. It's a site of costly sacrifice and blood. It's also a site of forgiveness and mercy. And it's a site where people will meet God in the future when the temple is built. Contributions God won't forget a wholehearted commitment to his plan. David walked in step with God's will and threw himself into doing whatever God's word allowed. David had a God word motivation. Every preparation and contribution he made was motivated by a desire to glorify God, not himself. And resources were sacrificed. David gave God only the best of his materials, ones that cost him something to give. So not only is there a lifestyle God won't forget, but there are contributions God won't forget, and they boil down to giving our best for God's house. The foundation for the house, in quotes, The spiritual site is a site of judgment for sin. It's a site of costly sacrifice and blood. It's a site of forgiveness and mercy, and it is the cross and the empty tomb. That is the spiritual site. The spiritual foundation that God built on the site of His choosing is the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ, as found in the Bible. That is the foundation of the house. You meet Jesus at the cross, you understand why you're meeting him there, what he has done for you, and he says, I have laid the cornerstone, build upon it. That is the foundation of the house. The construction of the house is a spiritual temple. We've looked at this before. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the church is a spiritual temple, and each one of us are living stones in that temple built and fit together as a great place for God to live, work, and have people meet him. You and I are just rocks. We're stones built into his house, upon his foundation. This is a living house in which he lives in his spirit. It's a spiritual house built up by the contributions of your time, your talent, and your treasure. The contributions that God won't forget are a wholehearted commitment to his plan. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go and make disciples. It's not my plan. This is Jesus' plan to his disciples that he shares with them, and it's written in an imperative in Greek, meaning it's not the ten suggestions, it's the ten commandments, (laughs) It's not Jesus saying, you know, when you get around to it, go ahead and make some disciples. Jesus says, you have one job until I come back, and that is to go and make disciples. You want to know what what He's looking for in us? He wants us to be, He wants us to make, and He wants us to reach. That's what He wants us to do. (laughs) End of story. Be a disciple. Make a disciple and reach others who do not know or walk with Jesus. That's it. Some people say, I need to know what the will of God is for my life. I just told you what it is. This is the will of God for your life. No, I mean, I mean his will for me. Yeah, okay, I'll slow down. <laughs> Go and make disciples. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to know where I'm supposed to work. Wherever you work, go and make disciples. There's your field. Well, I don't work anymore. Wherever you are, go and make disciples. I don't think finding God's will for our lives is that hard. I think we want to make it hard. It's not hard. It's go and make disciples. Who are your neighbors? Do you know their names? Are you going to invite them to the 24th? with the inviter card? Have you been praying for your neighbors? If you don't know your neighbors, maybe you don't know their spiritual condition. Maybe you do know your neighbors and you do know their spiritual condition. Are you going to invite them? Well, they might think I'm weird. Okay. (laughs) I don't see that in Matthew. It's not Matthew 21, 21. 28, 19 to 20, and then 21 is, unless it makes you feel weird. That isn't in there. I think people thought Jesus was weird. How about Colossians 1, 28 and 29? We teach everyone with all wisdom, presenting everyone mature in Christ. This is our church's mission. Do you believe God's plan applies to you and involves you? Where have you been building in ministry this past year? There's a hundred places at this church and a thousand places outside of this church where you could be at work. And some of you probably are. And so, yay. But where have you been building? Where will you make a wholehearted commitment to contribute in 2024? That's next year. You have a whole month to pray about it. Where are you going to make a wholehearted commitment to God's plan? How about a Godword motivation? First Corinthians ten, thirty-one. Anyone have that one memorized? You probably do. As soon as you hear it. Um, Paul has been talking about um, um, its lessons from Israel is what he's been talking about. And so he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't look to get a statue. Don't you go make a statue of yourself. If you do, I will find you, and then I will take you, and we will go find the statue, and we will tear it down. We're not going to make statues to ourselves. We're going to bring him glory. Great question from 2 Samuel. Are you a Saul? Are you an Absalom? Or are you a David? David wasn't perfect. Think you've seen that by now. Are you building for his credit or yours? Do you rejoice at being the platform rather than the show? How will you use your one and only life? God won't forget a wholehearted commitment to his plan a Godward motivation, and resources that are sacrificed for His work. Interesting thing about Luke 18 is the parable of the talents. It's told in another gospel, well done, good and faithful servant, you got, you know, you had ten, and here's ten more, you know, coins. In the Luke version, it says, well done, you, I gave you ten coins you get 10 cities. <laughs> hmm. What does that mean? I don't know exactly. But here's what I think. What we do in serving now has a direct bearing on what we are going to rule and reign with Christ in the future. And if you did well and done, good, and faithful servant with your ten coins, he's going to give you ten cities to rule over. You did well done, good, and faithful servant with five, then you get five cities. Well done, good, and faithful servant even with one, you're going to get one city. There's a direct bearing between our service here and what we will help him with, whatever that means, in the future. Otherwise, why does he talk about rewarding us with cities if we've been faithful to do his work? It has something to do with ruling and reigning with him in the future. So what we do now has a direct bearing on them. Crazy. Are you investing your God-given financial resources to build, in quotes, God's house? his church. I don't necessarily mean a physical plant, although certainly sometimes we need to do that. I'm talking about his people. We, the people, are the church. This is just a building. What are you doing? What am I doing to build up people? That's what we need to be thinking about. And are you giving God the best of your resources or just the leftovers? there are contributions God won't allow to be forgotten. What does God look at when he eulogizes a person? These kinds of things from these last few chapters. Linda Ellis's poem finishes this way. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real, and always try to understand the way other people feel, and be less quick to anger and show appreciation more, and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? And I would just scratch out one word and say, I don't care what other people think. What does God say? What is important to God? And if I want to be remembered for anything, I want it to be things that are important to God, not things that are important to other people. And I know you feel the same. How are we spending our dash? Next week, read 1 Kings 1 and 2 if you haven't already. Exciting reading, a new book. Here we go, about to go into Solomon's hands, the kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for telling us what's important to you. We've seen in detail the way David lived his life. It's ups, it's downs, it's lefts, it's rights. We've, We've struggled with him when he's made wrong decisions. We've ached with him when he's made sinful decisions. We've been amazed by him as he writes poems and and songs and prayers to you. Uh, We've seen him be indecisive. We've seen him be greatly decisive and very courageous. We've just really seen a picture of a human and one who lived in such a way that you said, here is a man after my own heart. Would you impress these things on our hearts in the coming days and weeks and months? These are the things that are important to you. We want you to continue. We know you are in Christ, but we want you to be pleased with us. And so help us to live in those ways and make those choices and make those priorities part of our lives. We ask for this please as well as for your great blessing and helping us even this week uh, to be, to make, and to reach, and to be sensitive to those around us um, who need to hear of Jesus. We love you, and we pray for all these things in his mighty name. Amen.